Hi, guys. I'm Marie. And I'm Maddie. Thank you for all of our Patreons that have joined us recently or stuck with us over the last year. You guys are all amazing. We really enjoy doing a Christmas card for you guys. And we have some fun stuff coming up on our Patreon as well. Yes, we're taking a trip to one of our cases that we've done. And in January, so soon. Yeah, like literally in like two weeks. Oh my gosh, in two, that just stressed me out. So in two weeks, we are leaving for a trip that we will be posting all about on our Patreon channel. So if you want to come and support us in any way, shape, or form, come join Patreon, hang out with us. We also have a live coming up in two weeks on mm-hmm. one of our cases that we're covering. We're covering a case, and then we're going to do a live on our Patreon to discuss theories and answer questions about this case. We like to do that on our more complicated or more like theory crazy cases. So we did it on the more Murray case. We're going to do it again in two weeks. So come and hang out with us on Patreon. And thank you everyone for supporting us. And we are here today bringing you a crazy story about a man who remained on the top 10 most wanted list while hiding in the wilderness for five years. Hmm. And you might know him as Eric Rudolph or as the Olympic Park Bomber. Now, hopefully all of you had a great holiday season. We're finally back after the holidays. Yes. Yes. And it is freezing here. We have snow and ice on the ground. We have been trapped in our house for days. It's a crazy cold front that we don't normally have. No. I have not been able to drive my car in days. Anyway, so Eric Rudolph, he was responsible for a series of bombs exploding between 1996 and 1998. On July 27 of 1996, at the Centennial Olympic Park in Atlanta, Georgia, during the Olympic Games, a security guard named Richard Jewell found a knapsack with a bomb in it, and the security team started evacuating the park. Now, the device did end up going off before they could defuse it, and it killed one woman, one man, and injured more than 100 others. Shit. Which is crazy since they were already evacuating. Now, presumably, the Olympics were targeted for a combination of multiracial and New World Order overtones. And if you don't know what that means, it's okay because Maddie is looking kind of confused as well. I was looking at what time period this was in. Not that long ago. No, 1996? exactly what I was thinking because it says New World Order Overtone. I was like, what year was this in? And I was like, 1996. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, what new world are you talking about? Yeah. Crazy, crazy. Now, the police immediately focused on Richard Jewell because this is the guy that found the knapsack, Right. And I actually think they made a movie about this. I I feel like they made a movie about Richard Jewell, but I'm not sure. Now, the media crucified this man. He was seen as guilty pretty much from the beginning. So basically, they think that he planted the bomb to find the bomb and to be like the hero in the situation. I mean, yeah, sure, that happens. Which... That does happen. But because of this, Eric Rudolph escaped scrutiny entirely. And he allegedly continued his bombing spree before 
the dust of the Olympic bombings had even settled. So he goes right to work on his next project at this point. Meanwhile, poor Richard Jewell is being... Crucified in the media when he just stumbled upon a bag. Was he a security guard? Yeah, he was a security guard That's at why, the event. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. He sees an un, he's a security guard. He sees a bag sitting there by itself. He opens it and he's like, fuck a bomb. Starts getting everyone out. And then later he's just like crucified by the media. What <laughs> a horrible experience to be the person blamed. I've always thought that being falsely accused of something is like one of the worst things that could happen to somebody. Rudolph was suspected of three other bombings, including the bombing of an abortion clinic in the Atlantic suburbs of Sandy Springs. By the way, that is Atlanta suburbs. What did I say? Continue. Atlantic. I said Atlantic? Yeah. Really? Yeah. I can't read. Okay. Anyway, um, and this was on January 16th, 1997. Yeah, and this was like a clinic where abortion services were provided along with other reproductive health services. So six people were injured in the course of two bombs detonating. Ooh, so this was two bombs. Right, and we will find out that that was kind of his MO. Like he would detonate one bomb, and then when emergency services got there, a second bomb would go off. Ooh, that's bad. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, so then we have the February bombing of 1997 of the Other Side Lounge of Atlanta, which is a predominantly lesbian bar, which resulted in injury, massive property damage, but no deaths. Right. And then then there was the bombing of January 1998, of a women's clinic that provided abortions in Birmingham, Alabama, which is also connected to Rudolph. Right. So Rudolph's bombs were made of dynamite surrounded by nails, which acted as shrapnel. Yeah, and that's what usually does the most damage in bombs. So a lot of bombers will, like, pack around their explosive with, like, Glass, nails, metal. The shrapnel sometimes does more damage than the actual bomb. Yeah. This would be how he was connected to these other bombings, along with him planting a secondary bomb that was designed to hit when emergency responders arrived, which is kind of just a dick thing to do. Eric Rudolph was first identified as a suspect in the Alabama bombing on February 14 of 1998, following a tip from two witnesses who had observed Rudolph departing the scene and noted his license plate and his appearance. Good job. I'm always amazed that people actually notice that. License plates? Well, that they notice something odd and take down a license plate for it. Mm -hmm. Which, by the way, the notes in my phone, there's a bunch of license plates for (laughs) license plate numbers that I've taken down for suspicious things. Yeah, there was a truck driving really slowly past our house the first day it snowed. Like, they went back and forth. Yeah, which is a super weird-ass thing to do. So I'm going to take down your license plate number just in case something happens. I don't know. Now, on May 5 of 1998, he became the 454th fugitive listed by the FBI on the 10 most wanted list. He was considered armed and extremely dangerous. No shit. He has bombs, you guys. With an offering of $1 million in reward for information leading directly to his arrest. He was later connected to and named a suspect in the other Atlanta and Alabama incidents on October 14, 1998. 
What makes the story of Eric Rudolph so extraordinary is that this man would spend more than five years in the Appalachian wilderness as a fugitive, evading a small army of federal and amateur search teams who scoured the area without success. Now think about that. He has a million dollars on his head. I would fucking go looking for him for a million dollars. And they knew the general area that he was. So the fact that he was able to stay hidden for five years. That's very impressive. It's so impressive. It just shows you how thick those woods are. Right. He had a million dollars over his head and no one was able to find him for five years. I know. It's crazy. It's crazy. It's a million dollars. It's a million reasons to go looking for this guy. Yeah. And we will talk a little bit about his time in the woods once we get through this part of the story. So. On May 31st, 2003, Rudolph was arrested by police officer J.S. Postel while rummaging through the trash bin behind a rural save-a-lot grocery store in Murphy, North Carolina. Right, so he wasn't even caught in the woods. He was caught because he came out of the woods because he ran out of food. And to the surprise of law enforcement, he was unarmed and he did not resist arrest at all. He's probably starving. He was like, I'm fucking done with this. This this sucks being out in the woods. Now, he was sentenced on July 18, 2005 to two consecutive life terms without parole for the 1998 murder of the police officer that was killed at the abortion clinic bombing. He was then sentenced for his bombings in Atlanta on August 22 of 2005, receiving two consecutive life terms. That same day, he was sent to ADX Florence Supermax Federal Prison in Fremont County, Colorado, where, like in other Supermax inmates, he spends 23 hours a day alone in an 80-foot square concrete cell. Solitaire just probably would not be super fun. Lose your mind. Now, the prison is about 90 miles southeast of Denver and is also home to Theodore Kakinski, or otherwise known as the Unabomber, Richard Reed, who tried to ignite a shoe bomb on the transatlantic flight, and Terry Nicholas, who helped carry out the Oklahoma City bombings in 1995. So we like to put our bombers together in a supermax prison where they spend most of their time in solitaire. Cool. What's scary to me is that with all... I'm surprised there's not more bomber copycats, honestly. Because you can look up any of these guys' bombs and see the exact way they built their well, bombs. Well, most bombers now are inspired by previous bombers. That's exactly yeah. what they do. They follow signatures of previous bombers because until they find their own. Because you can literally look up exactly how any of these man, men made their bombs and see the exact setup. Yeah, that kind of information maybe should be taken down. I don't know. <sighs> now, Rudolph would actually write a memoir about his time on oh, the run. Oh, oh, oh. Good shit. Is this a book? Is this out here? Is where's oh, his memoir? Book. Yeah. Oh, it's a it's a full book. Yeah. That's correct. Well, okay. it's like three hundred some pages. Memoirs are usually a little shorter than books, but it's basically like your life story. But before we talk about that, let's take a look at Rudolph's young life. Yeah, it's always good to know where they come from. Yeah. So at an early age, he would start a downworld spiral. Downward. Few- what I say? Downworld. At an early age, he would start a downward spiral fueled by rage and extreme views. 
Eric was born in Florida on September 19th, 1966. There's where he went wrong. He was born in Florida. One of six we children. We love you, our Florida listeners. I don't know why she's dogging on Florida right now. <laughs> His mother, Patricia, was from Philadelphia. And fun fact, she had actually backed out of being a nun prior to her final vows, but remained a religiously boisterous woman who constantly engaged in community work and participated in anti-war demonstrations and pro-religious movements with a charismatic attitude and a drive for change. So it doesn't sound like her views are all bad, maybe, but the extremeness of them for sure affected Rudolph. So his parents struggled financially with raising their family and moved often. And I will say there's not a lot of information about Rudolph's father out there. It, it mostly focuses on his mother. Rudolph's life began initially in Florida in a coastal area like New Smyrna and Fort Lauderdale. In his book, he describes his early childhood as adventurous with a lot of time spent outdoors. Yeah. And his mother attended various forms of religious events, retreats, and was always volunteering in some way for the church. And religion was a big part of his childhood. While the family lived in Homestead, Florida, it is described from Rudolph's point of view as tense and violent, where racial tensions and physical altercations were common. Going through public school was like a battleground. Hell yeah, that was a battleground. That is as Southern Florida as you can get. Yep. Rudolph describes it in his book as resembling a prison, a windowless concrete box with steel doors and guards that patrolled the hallways with walkie-talkies. Racial gangs controlled their turf and viciously punished trespassers. To survive, you had to know where to sit, where to walk, and where you were forbidden to breathe. So that's pretty extreme. Sounds like a great way to start out your childhood. Right? Your schooling experience. Like a good school to go to. Your first main interaction with people. I wonder if they had like the uh, metal detectors. Mm. Maybe not back back then. I bet this school has metal detectors now. (laughs) Let us know if you live in Homestead, Florida, and if your schools have metal detectors. We're curious. So being beaten and intimidated was part of the public school experience in South Florida. And keep in mind, like, this is from his point of view. We don't really know, but we suspect that maybe Florida schools in this day and age might have been a little bit like this. At one point, he describes a vicious beating he received between periods that seemed to strike a chord, where he finally reaches his tolerance for the savagery that is public school, giving his mother an ultimatum. Either they send him up north or call the youth authorities because he would never step foot inside Homestead High or any other public school in Florida. That's quite the ultimatum. Like, Maddie, that'd be like you coming to me when you were in high school and being like, I'm never stepping foot in a public high school again, so either call the police on me or send me up north to go to actual public school. It wouldn't have worked out. No. You would have told me to fuck off and go to school. stupid no. What are you talking about? Throughout his childhood in South Florida, they had made it a tradition to go up into the mountains of Nanahala, North Carolina, where a family friend lived. And the children spent much time learning to hunt, build, 
and survive in the wilderness. Spoiler alert, Eric does not finish high school. So he does drop out. I don't know if it was at the time of this ultimatum or if it was some other time, but he does drop out. Either way, he does not finish high school. Correct. Okay, Maddie, you can do it. Okay, so with the death of his father in 1981, moving away from Homestead became more and more realistic. His mother took it the hardest, finding it difficult in raising a family on her own in Homestead. With help of an inheritance, Patricia Rudolph... Inheritance? Is that not what I said? You said inheritance. I mean, I don't know if that's a word or not. Inheritance? 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 I don't know. I don't, I don't think they have shortened the word inheritance to inheritance. Okay, so, so with the help of an inheritance, inheritance? Yeah. With the help of an inheritance, Patricia Rudolph was able to invest her money into an older home in North Carolina near the Nottaholin, um, to live close to their family friends. The house needed work, but she bought it and committed to the move on one condition. Rudolph and his brother must go to the house and make the house she purchased livable before she stepped foot in it. Right, which is kind of like a tall order for two young men. Mm -hmm. But they did it. So together, Rudolph and his brother began to carve out a home in the wilderness, working on it during the day and sleeping inside of it at night. According to Rudolph's account in his memoir, Uninsulated, the house was bone cold in the winter. One entire wall was open to the elements. We had no plumbing or running water, and we used a makeshift outhouse. We fetched water from a small creek that ran by the house. One of our first projects was constructing a water system, all designed and constructed by ourselves. Right, and that's a direct quote from his memoir, so... Either him and his brothers are really skilled or they had help on this house. I really don't know. So, as we said, Rudolph never finished public school when moving to Natahala, dropping out in the ninth grade to work as a carpenter with his older brother. So, they had some actual, like, carpentry skills, it sounds like. Now, as a teenager, he was taken by his mother to the Church of Israel compound in 1984. Now, this church is connected, or has been connected, to the Christian identity movement, and this tied him to even more outrageous extremist views, although it sounds like he got plenty of this at home anyway, Mm -hmm. but definitely more of an extremist group that he is visiting. Gotcha. Now, after dropping out of high school, Rudolph received his GED and then attended Western Carolina University in Colloway for two semesters before he enlisted in the U.S. Army. They're always in the Army. Man. Unless they're not. But Maddie does say that they're always in the Army. How Even often? though half the time they're not. But yes. Well, a lot of the times they're in the Army. And if they weren't really established in the Army, it's because they got kicked out of the Army. Which, guess what? He does. But he underwent his basic training in Fort Benning. And while serving with the 101st Airborne Division, he also attended the Air Assault School at Fort Campbell. He retained the rank of Specialist E-4 before he was involuntarily discharged in January of 1989 due to marijuana use. 
Oh, he wasn't even, like, kicked out for something violent? No. He was literally, like, trying to chill out, and he got kicked out for that. <laughs> Usually they're kicked out for, like, aggression. Or for not being able to um, uh, follow authority. After he was arrested for the bombings, the Washington Post reported that the FBI considered Rudolph an affiliate with the Christian Identity Movement, which asserted that Northern European whites are the direct descendants of a lost tribe of Israel God's chosen people. The Christian Identity Movement is not an organized religion nor is it affiliated with specific Christian denominations. So it is a theology based on a radical interpretation of Christianity. White supremacy is known to adopt these teachings. Christian identity promotes the idea that all non-whites or those who are not wholly of European descent will either be exterminated or enslaved in order to serve the white race in the new heavenly kingdom of earth under the reign of Jesus Christ. Yeah, so we don't want to call anybody crazy on this podcast, but yeah. Um, I would say that is, yeah, no. Yeah. The Christian identity also preaches the evils of homosexuality, prostitution, abortion, and general sexual unseemliness of all sorts. In that same article in the Washington Post, it is reported that some FBI investigators working on his case believe that Rudolph may have written letters in which he claims responsibility for the nightclub and abortion clinic bombings on behalf of the Army of God, the same group where his book can be found, by the way. In other written statements by Rudolph, he cites biblical passages and offers religious motives for his militant opposition to abortion. Media outlets and reporters have described Rudolph as a Christian identity extremist, which I didn't know even existed, or a Christian terrorist. Oh, he is weirdly normal looking. Yeah. He is really, really... Especially in the non-mugshot picture. Yeah, look at it. He looks literally just like a normal ass guy. Yep. Mm -hmm. That's terrifying. He doesn't even look crazy. Nope. Although he is wearing a bulletproof vest, jail PJs, and handcuffs. But he's smiling and looks like he's just like strolling down the street. <sighs> he is also seen as part of an attempt to try and use the Christian faith to try and forge a kind of racial and social purity. In a statement that was released after his guilty plea, Rudolph denies ever being a supporter of the Christian identity movement, claiming that his involvement amounted to a brief association with the daughter of a Christian identity adherent, later identified as a pastor by the name of Daniel Gaiman. So he's basically saying, his association with the Christian identity movement was he was associated with the daughter of a pastor of this movement. In his book, he actually dedicates an entire chapter to his experience in the Church of Israel from 1984 to 1986. And remember, this is the place that his mom took him. Took him. And that's very extreme. He describes the Patriot Movement, and the faith behind it, and his ideology toward all of it. 
quoted from his book, he says, the whole experience with the Patriot Movement taught me an invaluable lesson about the limitations of organized resistance. I saw clearly that many of the Patriot leaders were not serious people. All their talk about taking back the country was just talk, and their groups were crawling with government informants. In the future, as I became more militant, I decided to keep a safe distance from any organized group. I maintained loose contacts with a few individuals in the non-identity patriot movement, but never again associated with any particular group. So basically what he's saying is he didn't think that they were doing enough or violent enough. Yeah. Right? So he didn't want to be associated with them. Of course not. Like they're all talk and no action kind of thing. Okay, so Rudolph's sentence included life in prison without parole, four consecutive sentences, plus 120 years and 2.3 million in restitution for the series of bombings across the South. Right, which how is he going to pay that from jail? He's not. I always hate when they install restitution. Unless he had a lot of money and his estate was worth money, that's a pointless sentence. U.S. District Judge Charles A. Panel told Rudolph as he announced his sentence, I do take some professional satisfaction in being part of the process that prevents you from killing or hurting anybody else. Oh, and this book, his memoir, is called Between the Lines of Drift, The Memoirs of a Militant. It is 394 pages And it begins with Rudolph's account of his capture in 2003 and his more than five years on the run. And his brother, Daniel K. Rudolph, is listed as the publisher. And he also created the simple line drawings that illustrate the book. Fun fact, his brother, wait a second, listen to this, Madison. His brother was the subject of a manhunt in 1998. Daniel Rudolph videotaped himself cutting off his hand with a saw as what he called a message to the media and to the FBI. I'm I'm sorry. He cut off his hands in a video and sent it to the FBI? With a saw. Yes. Yeah. It's a message, Madison. A message of fucking what? That you're insane? It's a message, Madison. According to the New York Times article, the Federal Bureau of Investigation said that it had received a videotape that the brother, Daniel Rudolph, had made while he was amputating his hand at his home in North Charleston. The videotape includes an undisclosed message to the federal agents who have mounted a nationwide manhunt for the man charged Eric Robert Rudolph, 31, the officials said. His brother... Daniel Rudolph amputated his hand on Sunday and then drove himself to a nearby Somerville Medical Center. An ambulance crew was sent to retrieve the hand, and Mr. Randolph was transferred to Roper Hospital, where his hand was surgically reattached. So his hand was reattached. Yeah, I don't know how well it works, though. I mean, he sawed the fucking thing off. I cannot believe he sawed his hand off. How do you even do that? And videotaped it. Like, what? But the FBI didn't release what the actual message was that he sent with it. And I don't know if it had anything to do with his brother or any other issue, but just crazy weird. He sawed off his hand in 1998. When did the bombs go off? 96. 
96. So his brother was on the run when he did this. So I wonder if it was uh, related. Like if it was like a message about his brother or something. I mean, I don't know. Fuck. A police artist sketch of Eric Rudolph obtained from the Georgia Bureau of Investigations throughout a records request decorates the cover of his book. Clever. So he actually used like the police sketch artist of himself from the witnesses as the cover of his book which he had to get through a records request. That's actually kind of smart. Mm -hmm. The book includes Rudolph's explanations of why he set off the bombs as part of a personal war against abortion, and he recounts his capture by the city police in Murphy. He also details key stages of his life and the bombings he conducted in Atlanta and Birmingham. He also describes his years on the run in a kind of survivalist tutorial narrative. So, like, here's... How you survive. Here's what I did. So he talks about how he lived off of the land, his precise planning and scouting, and the challenges and victories that he faced throughout those years on the wild. Nowhere in his book, though, does he ever express remorse for the deaths and the injuries that he caused. No, of course not. Those were all collateral of his mission. His, I know. He described what his initial intentions were when committing the Olympic bombings in Atlanta. He writes that his original idea was to damage Atlanta's power grid in hopes of causing a large enough blackout that it would disrupt the event altogether. The plan quickly changed to extreme when he began experimenting with different types of explosives and coming up with a more disastrous plan. He writes, the new plan was simple. Instead of using hard to make high explosives, I decided to use low explosives packed into pipe nipples or what they call pipe bombs. I'd plant a pipe bomb near an Olympic event, then phone in a warning to 911. Security would quickly clear the area before the device exploded. The next night, I'd do it again. The cumulative effect of four or five such explosions should create a climate of instability in Atlanta. If people felt unsafe, they would go home, taking their money with them. Attendants would nosedive along with profits. Although simple, the new plan was dangerous. The warning call to 911 could go unheeded and the bomb could explode prematurely, killing innocent civilians. But I ignored these potential dangers and decided to go ahead with the plan. It was a fatal decision, obviously. What the fuck did you think was going to happen? But to me, this implies that his intention was never to kill innocent people, although we know that he set up second bombs to do just that. But I think he's trying to make it sound like that wasn't the plan. I don't know. He dedicates a chapter of his book to the details of his planned out attack against the new women's clinic in Birmingham. He wrote, It felt strange planning the deaths of other human beings. During the next month, the employees of the new women would go about their lives, oblivious to their death date. And he said perhaps it was better not knowing. But I knew. And that unsettled me. I never wavered in my conviction, though. To me, this was war. As the operators of the facility that slaughtered 10 to 20 unborn babies every day, the employees of New Women's were mass murderers. I saw them as enemy targets. Pushing aside any feelings of pity, I proceeded with a clear conscience. So he's also saying his conscience is clear. Even though he killed 
first responders at that bombing. Yeah, so we didn't even... Uh, I know. I think he's he's pretty delusional because obviously every argument he has completely counters itself. I know. With a whole nother, like, every... You know what I mean? Like, every... Like, dilemma. Like, moral dilemma, yeah. Yeah. He vividly describes his deliberate plans and how he prepared for the bombings. He had every move... He would make every possible scenario planned out, along with plan B and C. Bombs weighing close to 40 pounds were made for this incident, with him being able to detonate one without a timer at a safe distance with a remote. He would decorate these bombs in Christmas garland, matching the shrubberies near the targeted center in order to camouflage them, which is actually kind of smart. So next, I would like to talk about the search for Rudolph for a second, okay? Now, the task force was comprised of several government organizations such as the FBI, the ATF, Alabama State Bureaus of Investigation, as well as North Carolina's Bureau of Investigations. And this doesn't count like all of the freelance people that are just out there searching for him for the reward. The task force included three primary operation locations in Atlanta, Birmingham, and North Carolina. Rudolph had been a fugitive since shortly after the Birmingham explosions, and federal agents, volunteers, and more combed the mountain region of Natahala National Forest in western North Carolina, where Rudolph was believed to be hiding. So we know he's very familiar with these woods because these are the woods that he grew up Mm -hmm. in, right? Yeah. Federal authorities had asked hunters, hikers, and others going into the area to report any signs of him, but avoid contact. Despite having this general location well known to the authorities the entire time, he had a good run evading the FBI, and it is believed that Rudolph had received ample assistance in his fight from the law. So they believe that there's no way he could have survived, I think, all this time out there without having some sort of help. Well, was he around backpackers and stuff? Was he... No, he's he's off trail, but... We will learn some of the ways that he could have kept himself going without additional assistance. And I don't know if they mean assistance while he's on the run or assistance in preparing for it financially, right? For supplies, for weapons, for things like that. Mm -hmm. But they do not think that he acted alone, which is fair. I don't know. Now, while he may have had ample survivalist skills, Rudolph wasn't able to live entirely off the land, obviously. That, that would be difficult anywhere, I think. He describes the meticulous planning before the explosions about what his plight into the forest would look like. So he meticulously mapped out the terrain, uh, practicing his sense of direction, finding places to store his food. He would fill a 55-gallon barrel with non-perishable items such as oats, grains, and soy and bury them in different locations. Yep. So caches of his barrels were buried in areas like Crane Creek, Snowbird, and Fire Creek Wilderness, which are all areas miles from each other in the Holland Forest. Right. So he's kind of giving me like a Israel Keys vibe, except for he buried supplies and not weapons. He was glued to the radio and news broadcast stations waiting for any indication that he had been identified. Right. So he's pulled off the bombings. He's gone and hid. Gone and hid. Well, he's in like a trailer. And now he's just like waiting to be identified, basically. Mm -hmm. He said lacking television reception, 
I had to rely on the radio to keep me informed. At the top and bottom of the hour, I'd rush over to listen to the news reports from Birmingham. They were still covering the basics. One dead, one wounded in the blast. A dead police officer would intensify the investigation. The radio, however, mentioned nothing about any leads. That uncertainty festered more doubt. Yet I searched for any excuse not to run. The fact that my name wasn't on the radio seemed to confirm it for me. Which I totally disagree because I feel like a lot of times they don't release their leads or who they're looking at. Yeah, no. On January 30th, he describes another lazy day where nothing new was reported on the news broadcast. And the task of turning on the radio felt so cumbersome. The hell does cumbersome mean? Cumbersome, like a big task, like really hard to do. Okay. A little tedious maybe too. Like just you couldn't bring yourself to do it. So he describes the resistance and how he convinces himself to take a rest day and treat himself to a home-cooked meal of spaghetti. Good. Good. I'm going to take a day off from listening for myself on the radio because I decided to blow some people up and make some spaghetti. Yeah, obviously. While going through the inventory of ingredients, it was the news talk 750 out of Atlanta radio broadcast that caught his attention. I had promised myself that I wouldn't listen to the radio, he said, until tomorrow. But for some reason, I went back on my promise. The radio started pounding out a jingle that introduces the new segment. I stopped to listen. The story was Birmingham. A witness saw a man get into a gray truck. Authorities are now searching for that truck. A jolt of adrenaline shot through me like an armor-piercing bullet. I knew then that they had me. Now it was either fight or flight. I debated rather to run or to fight them in court. I chose the woods. I went into the bedroom and started ransacking the place like a madman, pulling drawers out and throwing things in the center of the floor, grabbing shirts, socks, jackets, everything within reach, and piled all of it into a bed sheet and hefted it out to the truck like Santa Claus. I don't remember what all I took, Most of it was superfluous since I already had the basics in my caches in the woods. I acted instinctively. All the while, a voice in my head kept repeating, get out of the house now. So knowing that he couldn't go directly to the fire creek where he had initially planned for the camp out, he had to wait out in the field until nightfall. Within that time frame, mistake after mistake was described in the text. Right. And I think he just had a lot of downtime in this waiting period where he's like, shit, I didn't do this. Shit, I didn't do that. I did this wrong. That kind of stuff. Thinking he could carry all of his goods into the woods, he realized it was just too much stuff. Thinking of other options, he considered driving out to Fire Creek. After dark and dropping off loads of things, driving would be risky in a vehicle that was being sought. Okay, so pulling the stack of sweaty bills from my pocket, I counted $800. It then occurred to me that I left the other $3,000 hidden in a picture frame at the trailer on Cane Creek. I shook my head in disgust. I couldn't go back there now. My mistakes kept piling up like a cord, like cordwood. The hell is that? 
Like cordwood? Cordwood. So cordwood is like, it's like small pieces of wood. So it's basically like a lot of small things piling up on top of each other. Okay. It, it's been used in like building and stuff like that. Cordwood. Okay. But you have to like pile it all together. I don't know. But dwelling on them wouldn't do me any good. I had plenty of time for that later. Right now I had to keep moving forward. The feds in Birmingham had scheduled a news conference at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time that evening. Having a sense of what they would say, Rudolph switched to his radio on the dot. A witness followed a man wearing a wig who got into a truck. That truck belongs to Eric Robert Rudolph. He enunciated every syllable for effect. The only thing missing, a drum roll. Although I had anticipated the announcement, hearing my name aloud over the radio froze my blood. In an instant, I became one of the most wanted men in the world. Millions of eyes would be searching for me now. From this moment forward, everyone became a potential enemy. From there, he sped off from his trailer and stopped to stack up on materials and food before he ditched his truck and began the journey afoot. Um, that would take him into the woods where he would survive for the next five years as a fugitive. Yeah, and he mentioned to- having topographic maps to assist in the direction and study of the terrain. The Fed searching for me knew that a man could not live on bread alone. He also needed water. They had topographical maps just like mine that marked all of the major creeks. Rather than comb every square foot on ground, the FBI would most likely search along the creeks, following their bloodhounds, hoping to intersect a scent trail heading to my camp. But the smaller springs and creeks are not on the map. In this segment, he describes his plan on water conservation and locating water sources without leading to his capture. He said, almost every hollow in the southern highlands has at least one spring. Waterborne pathogens such as guardians are rare in these smaller springs. Only the larger creeks, rivers, and lakes carry contaminants, mostly from animal dung. The smaller creeks and head springs where the water gushes from the hillside are pure and delicious. Some springs gush out of the ground, travel for shorter distances, and then seep back underground. A moonshiner spring, three little springs, often hide deep inside the rhododendron slicks. I discovered a nice moonshiner spring in the hollow just north of the spur. So basically, knowing that the FBI might look for him at the major waterways, Mm -hmm. he found other places to get water. Yeah. He described being meticulous at all times, in every way possible, to maintain his hiding. Setting up his tent with camouflage made of hemlock boughs, he would plow hog trails in order to move things into camp and later smooth the leaves flat in order to obscure any trail. He said, I dug a small cubby hole under a boulder where I could hide my body heat if a helicopter came overhead with forward-looking infrared scopes. That's the first person I've ever heard of doing that. Mm -hmm. That's super smart. Concealing my body heat was easy. Hiding the heat of my campfire was more difficult. Even under the dense canopy, my cooking fire emitted an incredible heat signature. In order to obscure his campfire, 
he would construct a cooking area north of his campsite in a dark hollow that curled back into the slope. The rhododendron overhang intertwined in one solid mass. The ground was saturated, sloshing underneath like a sponge. Fire wouldn't burn on the ground. To get it up off the wet ground, I laid a little slab of flat rocks and ran a center pole over them. When the rain came hard, I threw a tarp over the pole, creating a simple frame shelter. He never lit fire at night and never used a fire for warmth. Fire was for cooking. At first, I cooked twice a day in the morning and then again in the afternoon, cooking only enough food for one meal. Cooking any more wasted time and firewood. And the fire burned for too long, leaving me vulnerable to FLIR devices. When I started using my Dutch oven to cook two or three pots of food at a time, after a meal, I spooned the remaining gruel into a bowl and saved it for later when I would eat it cold. If the gruel froze, I would break it into chunks and place them into a baggie and shove the baggie into my sleeping bag to thaw it out for my morning meal. The excess gruel was stored in a bucket and hung high in the trees. This reduced my cooking time down to a couple hours a week. That's a lot of work. Yeah. Well, remember the remember the one case that we covered where he was caught almost immediately because he had smoke coming up from his campsite? Yeah. yeah. Camp Keller. The Camp, Camp Keller. Keller. I, yeah. He was literally caught within like four hours. This guy spent all the family money creating this bunker for like 10 years. He had like a 10-year plan. He was planning on killing his family like the entire time. He made this huge underground bunker. And planned to survive there for a long time. He yeah. had tons of food. This was in 2012 when we all thought the world was going to end. Uh-huh. So that's why he thought the world was going to end and he didn't think his family could survive without him. But he didn't think he could keep his family alive. So he burned the entire family alive in his house. And, and then he, ran away. And he literally was caught almost immediately because of his campfire smoke. He had a campfire in his... He had a chimney, and he lit a fire in his bunker, and the smoke from the chimney. But he had built an underground bunker. So yeah. this man actually, like, had a ton of food. I feel like he had a better chance of surviving than Eric oh, Rudolph. 100%, but, but yeah. Eric Rudolph is apparently smarter than apparently. whatever yeah. Keller, whatever his first name was. Now, the night his truck was found on February 7, 1998, sitting there for over two weeks before the discovery was made. So... Once they discovered it was him, it still took them two weeks to find his truck. Any scent that he had left behind on the roads was gone, right? So he said, the 15 air miles between the truck and me suddenly seemed like 15 feet. The circulous route I'd taken from Martin Creek suddenly turned into a straight line. I was at one end and the feds and their bloodhounds were at the other. It was only a matter of time before we came face to face. He had wanted the feds to believe that he had switched vehicles when he dumped his truck, but obviously the plan had failed due to their presence in the woods. So he was hoping they would find his truck and think he had switched vehicles and then left from there. Mm -hmm. But obviously the FBI did not think that was the case. Meanwhile, the FBI was building a profile on him trying to anticipate his every move which obviously wasn't very effective, and Rudolph continued to evade police. While growing up, Rudolph had learned rudimentary outdoor skills, but never stayed longer than a few weeks. He had now had to adjust his thinking to learn to plan like someone who lived in the woods. 
He says in his book, it's like a psychological hurdle. This is especially true when it comes to food. I could identify most of the edible plants in the highlands. I knew basic hunting tactics. However, pulling those skills into practice day in and day out would prove challenging. When a person subconsciously anticipates returning to civilization after a three-week stay in the bush, he behaves differently than someone who must live out there indefinitely. He describes the mental aspect as challenging, emphasizing the fact that it took a year just to reroute his mental circuits. I can imagine it would take about a year. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it takes like three days to try to get into like a long backpacking trip. At least, yeah. It takes at least like three days. Day one, two, and three. Or day three is the first day you're always like, I can do this. That's fine. Whatever. We'll keep going. Yeah. But, like, day one and two, three is pretty difficult. Day four is easy. I would say day four is the day that I'm like, okay, I got this. The first three days of trying to backpack, like, hiking every day, sleeping, hiking, sleeping, hiking. The first three days, your body is like, why the fuck are you doing this? What are you doing? What is wrong with you? Why would you do this? And then it becomes resigned. And then your body's like, okay, whatever, this is what we're doing. Let's keep going. Once his name was officially added to the FBI's 10 most wanted list, virtually everyone became a potential threat. He had to avoid hunters, hikers, day trippers, fishermen, lodgers, and passing motorists. Honestly, I didn't expect to last long. I figured that a hunter would stumble upon my camp and the feds would capture or kill me. They're just going to capture you, buddy. Wait, you think you're going to get sacrificed in the woods by well, the Well, think cops? about it. If they think he has bombs and weapons... He's probably got a higher chance of being shot in the woods. Oh, yeah, I guess. Yeah. That mindset shortened my survival calendar. Yeah, like maybe I'll make it here a month, he would think, and so on until he wore out clothes and equipment that he should have preserved and ate food that he should have conserved. He said that he passed up acorns and nuts that he should have gathered and between the need to secure food and the need to avoid people, he concentrated more on the latter. So he's basically saying that if he had known he was going to be out there for so long, he would have preserved his food and supplies differently. He still made it five years, dude. In February, he inventoried his food, realizing that he had about two months left. And he had quickly burned through a month's supply of food in fewer than two weeks. Rationing and supplementing was now imperative. The book reads almost like a tutorial with the detailed facts of the subject of survival, food gathering and rationing, and more that made those five years possible. There are three essential survival items, a fire starter, a cutting tool, and a rifle with the first two items, you can make a fire and shelter and do most things necessary for short-term survival. But to live long-term in the wilderness, you absolutely require a high-powered rifle with plenty of ammunition. I carried an FNC caliber 223 semi-automatic rifle. The 223 round packs enough punch to bring down larger game like deer, bear, and boars, but not a smith as to shred smaller game like turkey, groundhog, and grouse to pieces. So basically it has enough punch to bring down the big game, but not enough that it shreds your smaller game. His paranoia, described in his book at times, is kind of entertaining. 
always in the back of my mind, he said, was the fear that instead of seeing a deer emerge from the morning mist, I'd see a person. I carried two pieces of handcuffs in my butt pack. Does he mean his back pocket? If I ran into a hunter, I'd cuff him to a tree and then use his truck to ferry my camp equipment elsewhere. Then I ditch his truck and rely his whereabouts to 911 or to his wife. That was the plan. But none of my plans had worked out lately, and I feared I might run into a hunter who wanted to be a hero and try to draw down on me. Uh, He should be concerned about that. I wonder if the reward was alive or dead. Are you wanted dead or alive, or do you have to be alive? Because I'm thinking they'll take you dead. He said that fishing was another common way to gather food for him and that he would use salamanders as bait attached to hooks that he would toss into good-sized pools of water. He would do that with multiple 20-foot lengths of fishing line, waiting an hour before he chucked them. Not all nets would catch, but he described rainbow trout, crayfish, and more falling into his traps. The fish grilled in peanut oil toasted tasted delicious. Good for you. Glad you have some peanut oil. Okay. A cold front blew into Fire Creek, bringing with it much rain. The weather whittles me down into a nub. It drizzles for hours at a time, turning the forest floor into a swamp. Droplets form on the roof of my tent and fell on my face. After the rain ceased, the wind started. Cold gusts of Arctic wind came at intervals like ocean waves. I mean, yeah, he does have like a nice way of writing sometimes. Like that was a that was a good description. One terrifying close call he recalls is when he realized turkey season was turning out to be a good one for him. He describes the setting, his position, and even the sounds around him. I started climbing to the top of a spur and wasn't even 10 yards from the trail when the air exploded. Boom, chick, chick, boom. I hit the ground. Several turkeys flew over me, disappearing into the thick fog. I couldn't see him, but I could hear him, a hunter on the trail fewer than 10 yards away. I held my breath. Chick, chick. He cycles another round into the chamber of his shotgun. I lay absolutely still for another 20 minutes before returning to camp. After that experience, I went cold turkey. The enticement of gobbling birds couldn't pry me away from camp. I'd learned an important lesson. Stay away from trails on weekends and during hunting season. I mean, it's funny too, because if this hunter had come across him, he'd probably just think he was another hunter. Like he probably wouldn't have even known who he was, really. Yeah. But but he might have, I guess. Other than turkey and fish, he relied on his store-bought supplies of food, the stuff that he had bought and stashed, which at one point he describes as running dangerously low around April. He said, I came into the woods weighing 190 pounds. By May, I probably weighed around 140. Climbing up the mountains had melted the fat right off of me. Then my body began feeding on my muscle mass. I'd really underestimated the calories I needed to survive. I'd calculated a daily intake of 2,000 calories, but probably burned over 3,000 calories per day. I was going to say my daily intake is like 2,000 calories. Mm -hmm. 
So I would say he definitely underestimated that. Heavy days, 5,000 to 8,000 calories. There was no need to panic, though. I had a year's supply of food in the Snowbird Mountains. All I had to do was make it over there. His destination to Snowbird Creek was about 15 air miles from Fires Creek. Topographic maps are invaluable, he said, to the woodsmen. Without them, I'd never have been able to move around the mountains the way I did. But those highly detailed maps sometimes lie, or rather they simply don't tell the whole truth. What looked to be an open pasture on a map was, in fact, a no-man's land strung with nature's barbed wire. I entered a hedgerow of sawbriars and exited the other side, missing a sleeve and a patch of skin. Entered the next one and came out missing a part of my leg and part of my manhood. Dangerous places to go, apparently. It's funny, too, that he calculated his calorie intake so low. I wonder where he got his calculations from. Because I know that when I did Wonderland, I calculated mine higher than what I thought I needed by quite a bit. And I still lost a pound a day hiking Wonderland. Yeah, I don't know, man. But I couldn't eat all of the food. Like, I physically could not eat all of the food that I had. Like, it got to a point where I was like... I can no longer eat oatmeal. Why did I think I was going to eat oatmeal for nine days straight? What was I thinking? So I think if I had eaten all my food, I probably wouldn't have lost that much weight. But as for his fate on April 8, 2005, the Department of Justice announced that Rudolph had agreed to a plea bargain under which he would plead guilty to all charges he was accused of in exchange for avoiding the death penalty. The deal was confirmed after the FBI found 250 pounds of dynamite he had hidden in the forests of North Carolina. His revealing of the dynamite was the condition of the plea agreement. He made his pleas in person in Birmingham and Atlanta court. Rudolph did release a statement explaining his actions. In an 11-page statement passed out by his attorney. Yeah... Rudolph detailed his motives, citing hatred of abortion, gay rights, and the federal government as his motivation for the attacks. One of his plans had been a strike on one of the FBI headquarters, which he revealed in detail in his book. And Rudolph had never spoken about his case until the publication of his book. I'm actually surprised that we allow our criminals to write books in prison. They can actually be released. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm I I do I do like the insight into their brains. Well, I really as do I, and I know they can't profit from this, right? Like his brother probably is the one that like like the money has to go somewhere. Oh, probably towards the restitution that he owes, right? And I do like the insight as well. As long as they're not profiting off of their book that they wrote. No, but he's gaining like fame off of it. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure he has fans now because of his book. I would guarantee he has fans out there. Well, his book also recounts the Atlanta and Birmingham bombings, which are the only first-person account that we have of these events Mm -hmm. is in this book. So, I mean, it's good that we have the information, but it's also very disturbing in a way that I still want to read it. But it's disturbing that we're putting 
this information out for people. Well, and I guess that's the thing. Like, all people in prison are going to have, like, weird copycats, weird followers. I mean, we definitely see that with the Night Stalker, with Ted Bundy, with all of these people, right? I mean, we see that with, with, like, other serial killers who were, like, uh, inspired by uh, just, like... Right, exactly. So we know that that's going to happen, but I feel like giving them a platform makes them more public But it also gives us the insight into what they were thinking. Mm -hmm. But anyway, we're going to talk about that all in our Bunker Talk. So stay tuned for that. We do want to thank Christina Alvarez for help on research in this episode. Thank you you so so much. much. We so appreciate it. We really, the help is just amazing. We couldn't do it. We couldn't do it without our researchers, without our Listeners helping us out and supporting us. We also want to thank Charlotte Rankin and Taylor Robinson for buying our coffee today. Oh, yeah. Thanks. Thank you so much, you guys. You guys are amazing. We really appreciate it. It's actually so funny because our coffee was $26 today. I know. The three of our stuff, so. Yes, you also paid for coffee with one of our guests today who is also in the bunker with us. (laughs) But I think that... Yeah, if you ever hear, like, random giggling or different noises in the background of we any... Have, we have a guest today, yeah. Now, this is Charlotte and Taylor, and this is... Charlotte is the one that we made the birthday video for. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. We also have new Patreons, and I just want to say that we love our Patreons. You guys are amazing. We had a ton of people join in December. We got a ton of Christmas cards sent out. We really, really appreciate all of you guys. You're amazing. Um, Today we have Angel Lopez. Hi, Angel. Welcome to Patreon. We also have Rachel. Hi, Rachel. Thank you so much. We have Michelle Duxbury. Yeah, Duxbury. I like that name. Very cool. Hi, Michelle. Welcome to Patreon. We also have Amanda McGettigon. McGettigon. Oh, my gosh. McGideon? McGideon? I would say McGideon. All right. Hi, Amanda. Hopefully we said your name wrong or wrong. Hopefully we said your name right. Probably not. I hope we said your name wrong. I'm so rude. I hope every name is so rude. And I hope it hurts your feelings. Um, Yeah. So thank you all of you for joining our Patreon. You guys are amazing. And we look forward to sharing lots of fun things with you. Thank you all for coming. Thank you for listening. If you want to see pictures on this episode, go and check out our social media. We are Lost in the Woods Podcast on Instagram, Lost in the Woods Podcast on Facebook, and that's pretty much all we really do. So You can find our other social medias, but I guarantee you there will be nothing on it. <laughs> or nothing really because on it. Because I run the other social media sites and <laughs> I don't do my job. Also... If you are a professional social media person if and you can help really us out, good at social media. drop us a line because Maddie Please, sucks at it. Please, for God's sake. I'm so like, bad at it. Like, seriously. Up. It's up. We just haven't posted anything on it. So if you have some skills, drop us a line. We would love some help with all of that fun stuff. So thank you so much for tuning in, and we will talk to you guys soon. All right. Bye. Jail TikTok is phenomenal, by the way, but... I'm sure it is. Okay, is this something we can actually play on the podcast? I mean...
Get get to the point. Get to the point. Anyway, they were just like harassing him on the thing, and he was just like, "I don't want to talk about it." Like all yeah, this that's stuff. Probably something. And then they made him answer the questions, but he was killed a couple days later in prison. Great. So great. Um, also, not helpful. You could have stopped at "I love prison TikTok," and it could have been done. Well, you can just leave it in the podcast as I love prison TikTok. But you never just say I love prison TikTok. You like continue on where I can't like cut I wanted you off. To, I wanted to tell you the story. That was a terrible story. How was I that show you the video? Okay. I believe you. They it were like good. interrogating this guy about his crimes, which were of a gruesome sexual nature, and then he was murdered in prison. Yeah. What? That's not a good story. Well, that was the after part That's not said- even funny. <laughs> I didn't say it was funny. I thought TikTok was supposed to be funny. <laughs> not all TikToks are funny. Yeah, not every... Not t- there's Actually, most of my TikToks are not funny. Remember so. when I said earlier that we record very quickly now? I take it all back. You jinxed it. I take it back. Can we focus, please? Hey. We're literally on, like, the first page still. We're only 17 minutes in. And have recorded about five minutes worth of actual, not even five minutes worth of actual conversation. It's fine. I don't have other things to do. I don't have a million things on my list to do for our podcast. It's fine. I can sit here and bullshit about TikTok with you all day long. Fortnite's still down. I got nothing to do. (laughs) Fortnite's been down all day. This is what happens when Maddie gets stir crazy. She sabotages our recordings. And I can't fucking get anything done. I have no other fun in my life. This is not fun. This is fun for me. And when I have to explain to a jury why I murdered you, it's not going to be fun for me either. (laughs) So can we please focus? If I get murdered, it is my mother's fault. Put that in the (laughs) podcast. I want everyone to know that. I probably did it. Also, I was thinking we should get life insurance on each other. Fuck no, mom. <laughs> the hell you think I am? You think I'm a fool? Okay. Ain't nobody taking up. out life insurance on me. Focus up. Sorry, whoever, d- when I, can, I die, everyone's fucked because I I'm not. I can forge your signature. It's fine. Focus up. <laughs> oh, just for fun. Okay. You should probably start looking for a new place to live. You're annoying the <laughs> shit out of me right now. No, I can't afford to live anywhere else. God, I'm literally going to kill you right now. Please don't kick me off. I can't afford it. Okay, now we're 20 minutes in. Can we please? Okay, yes, go. It's, you're supposed to be going. Wait, where the fuck am I talking? Wait, what? It's my turn? It's been your turn for like 15 minutes. <laughs> well, how the fuck did I get off topic? Oh my God, what? it started with prison TikTok. I swear <laughs> to God, I'm going to lose my fucking mind. Uh. Okay, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry, okay? <laughs> it is... 1.30 in the afternoon, and I feel like I need a drink now, and I've only been in your presence for 20 minutes and 55 seconds. No, we just went to the store. Oh, my God. What are you talking about? You've been in my presence for at least an hour now. That's the problem, I think. Okay. I've hit my expiration on, like, how much time I can spend with you when you're in this kind of condition. You should have just gone to Kohl's by yourself. You should have. It's fine. That's what you get for being lazy and not wanting to come. I didn't want to get out of the car. (laughs) So one of Maddie's Christmas presents she wasn't like super thrilled about. And so we had to send it back through Amazon, but it has to be sent within 30 days. And it 30 days is like on the first or something. Like we're almost out of time because it's like the 28th or 29th today. I don't know. I think it's the 29th. 
and it was not that I was not thrilled. It was the fact that it was the wrong texture and the texture M- grossed Maddie's me out. weird about textures. Side note, I have the same down comforter and it's great. She's out of her fucking mind, but that's fine. <laughs> I'm scrusty. also I'm also weird about textures, but I use a sheet like a normal civilized human. So I don't know I am not the texture civilized of my blanket. enough to use a top anyway, sheet. Anyway. Does that survive does that surprise any of our listeners no, that I doesn't. do not use But top you can't sheet. wash your comforter like you can your sheets. Like I can take my sheets off twice a week and wash them. I know what you're talking about. I wash time. I wash that comforter like it's my sheets. It's a down comforter. Yeah. It's too big to even fit in our washer. No wonder our washer doesn't work properly. You're washing your comforter in it. Anyway, so two one of the options for returning on Amazon right now is that, or all the time, but you can drop it off at like a Kohl's location, which if you don't know what a Kohl's is, it's like a department store. They Do sell they lots not of, have Kohl's all over the place? I have no idea. I mean, I guess we have international listeners. I doubt they have Kohl's in other countries. Yeah. Either way, you're not missing much, but I you're hate, missing nothing. I hate going into Kohl's. I hate standing in their lines. I hate all of it. I hate returning stuff. I have, like, this severe anxiety with returning anything. I hate returning stuff. Seriously. I literally can't return stuff. So if my children, I give them all, like, the receipts and, like, the gift whatever for everything that they get for Christmas, I'm like, return away. Get something you like. I don't fucking care. But I am not returning anything. So I told Maddie when she decided she didn't want the blanket that she would have to be the one to return the blanket. So I sent her into Kohl's, which is what started this whole thing today. <laughs> if there's ever, like, a real return that I have to do, it just doesn't happen. I feel like there should be, like, a phobia about returning stuff. Like, that should be, like, an actual thing because I have so much anxiety about returning anything. It doesn't matter if I bought it. It doesn't matter if I wanted it, if it was for somebody else. Like, none of that matters. Any kind of return stresses me the fuck out. Anyway, we are going to get back to our story now. Okay, so. yes. He underwent basic training in... Stop cracking your knuckles. (laughs) Jesus. Maddie does that too. You guys are seriously out of control. He underwent basic training in Fort... I'm sorry. Did that just fuck with you? I'm really sorry. I literally don't know what's wrong with me. I can't help myself. Maddie has a death wish today. I literally cannot stop myself from annoying you. I don't know what my problem is. I'm going to have to like string all of this together at the end. Like every time that Maddie like fucking annoyed me during this episode. I can't even handle it. I hyperextended my knee trying to flinch away from you. (laughs) I hurt my knee pretty bad actually. Because my leg was sideways. I don't feel bad for you at all. I hurt myself. Not even a little bit. (laughs) Maybe you wouldn't have to flinch away from me if you weren't intentionally trying to annoy the shit out of me. No, I wouldn't have. Okay. Check the ring footage. Delivery. I got my burner. Okay, don't open your burner right now. We're talking about oh, this look mint. how pretty it is, though. Oh, my God, it's huge. That is really big. Let me no, see. Hold on. <laughs> Why is this so big? Oh, my God. It's like three times bigger than mine. Well, that's the thing. They're they're a lot bigger than the one that we have, but they're a lot smaller huh? than the jet boil. Hey, Hayden's like, what the fuck are you guys talking about? That thing looks puny. No, this is big compared to our thing's current burners. Huge. It is huge. Oh, but look how pretty it is. It's huge. Oh my god, look at the starter. Oh, oh it's, so it's sparking right now as you speak. Whoops. <laughs> there's no there's no gas there's no gas hooked up to it. it. You're still sparking in a fucking cardboard box 
in an enclosed space. <laughs> God, there are probably fumes in this room that could blow up as well. Yeah, so just so everybody knows, I got a few REI gift cards for Christmas. As in few, she means like six or seven. <laughs> I think it was seven. So I decided to do a new cook set with some of my gift cards. So new cup, new pot, new burner, all of it fits inside of each other. It's amazing, and I seriously can't wait to put it all together. She's psychotic. She's been complaining about the fact that her cup does not fit into her pot for, like, four or five years now. Well, technically, and my I've been having propane... to listen to it. <laughs> Shut up. Technically, my propane doesn't fit inside my cup so that my cup can fit inside my pot. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> Let me rephrase that. My mom is pissed off that she cannot stack all of her kitchen gear into one little stuff sack. You guys. One little pot. One little small You guys, my backpack, when we are going on a multi-day trip, have you seen how high and tall my backpack is? It's bigger than me. It goes over my head. Like, this is going to be amazing. It's amazing. Why aren't you excited? I'm excited for you. You're a jerk. You're being a jerk right now. I'm not being a jerk. You're just jealous. I'm not being a jerk. Although when I ordered it, Maddie was like, yes, new gear, because she knows she's going to end up with my old gear. <laughs> I know I'm going to get her old pot. I'm so excited to have my own pot and not having to use my cup all the my time. My pot is actually really nice, too. Yeah, I know. Mm -hmm. Why do you think I haven't bought myself a pot? I just <laughs> use my metal cup. And the middle of my cup is like burnt all on the bottom for my <laughs> stuff because I just put my cup on top of it. My cup goes back on the stove a lot too because I like to heat up my coffee. But, you know, 